welcome back to Safety. On today's episode of Safety, we're going to be talking about human trafficking. And I'd like to introduce my co-host, Jack. Hi, Georgia. It's so great to be back. I'm really excited for this episode, but I gotta admit, I really don't know much about human trafficking. I feel like the only thing I know about human trafficking is from watching Liam Neeson's Taken, which, don't get me wrong, it's a great movie. Liam Neeson is great, but I don't think it's the most accurate depiction of human trafficking. I think you're probably right. Trafficking is somewhat of a foreign concept to most of us, and movies like Taken often reinforce our belief that trafficking only happens in foreign countries, which... It's not necessarily true. Right, right. I mean, I feel like I never hear about it happening here in the States. It's hard to believe that over 50,000 human trafficking cases were reported in the U.S. between 2007 and 2018. Unfortunately, these numbers are likely underestimated, especially given the negative stigma that surrounds the subject. Mm -hmm. Of the cases reported in 2019 to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, approximately 10% involved minors. There was a study that was published in 2015 out of San Diego that revealed 14 was the estimated average age of entry for girls in the sex trade, which is just horrible. Mm -hmm. And states with the highest number of cases include California, Texas, Florida, New York, and Ohio. In 2019, over 150 cases were reported right here in Indiana. Wow. I had no idea that human trafficking was such a big deal in the states. I just don't hear about it at all. But I'm a little ashamed to admit this. I've got to ask this to you, Georgia. How do you exactly define human trafficking? It's a great question. Human trafficking can be defined as organized criminal activity in which human beings are treated as possessions to be controlled and exploited. Generally, it's broken into two major categories, which are sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Mm, Okay, that definitely makes it a little bit more clear. But most of the times I hear about human trafficking, it's usually about a woman who's taken for sex trafficking. Do you know if men are ever targeted in trafficking? Most victims of trafficking are women, but men are also specifically targeted for labor trafficking. Okay. Often those who are trafficked have no idea that they're in danger, let alone are they aware that they're being trafficked. Take Rebecca Bender, for example, a young woman who had just started college who was a victim of trafficking for six long years. This is her story. I was born and raised in a small town in Southern Oregon. And I was a good kid in school. I grew up in a normal middle-class family. Um, I got great grades. I was really active in sports, and I even graduated a year early. I was accepted into Oregon State University, and I had my dorm room already assigned, and I was really excited to move up to Corvallis. But that summer, I got pregnant by my boyfriend, and I had to make a real tough decision whether I was going to keep my baby and unenroll from university or get an abortion and keep it all a secret. That was a really tough summer for me. After I had the baby, I had some friends that had gone up to U of O to go to college, and they had an extra room in one of their apartments. It was at that time that I met a boy or a guy who pretended um, to take interest in me. I really thought he liked me and we got along really well. He was really funny and charming and he had a nice car and he, he always picked up the tab, he had nice clothes. He told me he was a record producer, that he had a band um, up in Portland, and that's why he frequently went out of town. There's a saying that says, when you take a child by the hand, you take the mother by the heart. And I really think that's what happened for me, because I had this new little girl and this man who showed this desperate attention towards her, like he wanted to really help make this family that I really wanted for my daughter. And he invited me to move in with him after about six months of dating, and I was really excited. 
brought him down to Southern Oregon to meet my family and everything seemed fine until we arrived in Las Vegas. He said we were moving there because that was the entertainment capital of the world and being a record producer and having um, a band that that's where they were going to get the most gigs and the most jobs and that's where his job was leading him. So I desperately uh, wanted to go with him, to be with him and, and to start this family that, that he promised me. He pulled up to an escort service and he said, this is how it works in Vegas. I've spent a lot of money to get you here. I put first and last on an apartment. I filled your fridge up with food and you're gonna need to get, earn that money back. And I felt, I felt trapped. I felt like, um, how am I gonna get out of this? And you didn't know if you were gonna live or die. You didn't know what he was gonna do or what he was capable of. And so it's, it was really scary. I can remember just running through the casino thinking, like, these people don't even have a clue what's going on. They're just, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching, Las Vegas, yay! And they're doing all this stuff and I'm, I'm running for my life. I'm running from a man that has forced me into doing things that I didn't want to do. When you have a, a trafficker that's waiting at home with your child and says, if you don't bring home $1,500, you're going to find your daughter out on the corner. I think I was probably more frightened to go home than I was to be in the room. Because if you got robbed, it was your fault for being stupid. Um, if you got raped, it was your fault for not watching your back. Anything that happened to you was typically your fault and you incurred more punishment um, for allowing those things to happen to you. So it made you always walk in fear of your trafficker. We would like to introduce our panelists joining us today. Each of them are experts on the subject of human trafficking, and they're here today to provide us with further insight on the subject. It is my pleasure to introduce Carrie Bennett, a lawyer who is the chief legal counsel for the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Hi, nice to see you. Next, we have LaTori Jones, who is a case response specialist with the National Human Trafficking Hotline Program, which is operated by Polaris. Hello, thank you for having me. Welcome, LaTori. Thanks for being here. And then next, we have Barbara Bachmeyer, who is an advanced practice provider and forensic nurse at IU Health in Indianapolis. Hello, thank you for having me today. Thanks for being here, Barbara. And thank you all for joining us. Let's get to our questions. Yeah, thanks again, everybody, for being here. This is exciting. I'm glad to have you guys here. I'd like to open up the questions and just kind of ask, what does trafficking look like? You know, what does it look like for a high schooler to be trafficked? What does it look like for a college student? Is, are there any differences? You know, what do things kind of look like? It falls into two primary categories, sex trafficking and labor trafficking. And both of them involve the coercing specific behavior. So it looks like someone being forced to either do something sexually or provide some sort of sexual service or provide some sort of labor in return for paying off a debt or making things right or feeling like they have to or else something's going to happen to them. Can you guys tell us who's the most vulnerable to being trafficked? Are there ways college students specifically could be targeted as victims of human trafficking? And by that, I mean like a spring break, music festivals, relationships, debt payment. Definitely, there is a group that is uh, more vulnerable than others. 
We all know that anyone can be a victim of trafficking, but there are certain risk factors that makes specific groups a little more susceptible to being trafficked, like, you know, people of color and individuals that belong to the LGBTQ plus community. So for a college student, that might look like someone who is experiencing financial need or struggling to pay for school or books or, you know, just somewhere to live. They might be taken advantage of by a fraudulent job posting, or they could be groomed by someone that they look at as a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and then they're later compelled to engage in sexual activity just to live and to get by. I think most people are under the assumption that a trafficker is somebody that you don't know, but how often is it that traffickers are somebody that you do know? Surprisingly, trafficking is rarely perpetuated by a total stranger or some random person off the street who is a kidnapper. What we normally see at the hotline is that a trafficker is someone that you do know. So it could be an intimate partner or a family member or, you know, some other close family friend that they've earned your trust. And so your guard is down and you just don't expect them to do something to harm you. Yeah. And a colleague of mine cared for a 13 year old that was being trafficked by his own father in the house. Uh, he was advertising on Grinder and having multiple men come in and out of the house abusing this child. So it's very disturbing when you find out the people that are supposed to be loving you and protecting you um, are actually the ones harming you the most. It's very disturbing for this young male to have to realize at age 13 that my own father was doing this. So I guess in that way, it's a lot like sexual assault, where usually if you know, you're a victim of sexual assault, you tend to know you're assailant. So I guess that's definitely something that I didn't know. What are some ways people can be trafficked without realizing it? I think a couple things out there that comes to mind and even verified through research is that these victims do not see themselves as victims. And there could be several reasons. They may feel that being sexually exploited is normal because of their past abuse as a child or adolescent. The trafficker may actually be somebody that the victim feels she's romantically involved with and that it's her boyfriend. In many cases, you know, the trafficker essentially just brainwashes the victim to the point where they believe that these traffickers truly care about them and their purpose is to keep them safe and they want to be loyal to who they see as a romantic partner. They also may feel that their situation being trafficked for sex is, is better than if they were in another home situation where they're homeless or come from an abusive home. So those are just some of the things that victims may not perceive themselves as being victims. Definitely. We see a lot of our human trafficking cases coming from domestic violence cases. At first, we think it's just an intimate partner violence situation. But then all of a sudden, we're working with a 22-year-old who's in love with someone who is coercing her into having sex with four of his friends and maybe doing it on videotape because that's what makes him happy. It's a lot more understandable when you realize that for that person, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't. I'm, I'm too scared to report this person. I'm too scared to leave this person because I really have nowhere to go. And as long as I have control and feel as safe as I can feel in this situation, yes, is that person being trafficked from a sexual standpoint? Absolutely. But they may not see it that way. Just to add on to that, especially if they start dating an older boy, somebody that's maybe 
five, six, seven years, 10 years older than if they're a teenager. That sometimes is very problematic also. That's a great point because it kind of leads into my next question. I was wondering if somebody could help me out with what are some of the common myths about human trafficking? It sounds like we've already kind of talked about one, how human trafficking doesn't always look like it does in the movies where somebody is kind of just forcibly abducted by some random stranger. But what are some other myths that we can kind of help bust? One of them is that, you know, trafficked persons can only be foreign nationals, as we talked about, or immigrants from other countries. We don't talk about the problem even in our own country about the domestic human trafficking going on. Another myth is that human trafficking is essentially a crime that may involve some form of travel, moving a person from point A to point B or across mm. state or national borders. And that's just not true. Mm. Again, the reality of it is that, you know, transportation is um, not an element, you know, of trafficking. It may be involved. To, it's a control mechanism to keep these victims in places they're not familiar with to make it less likely for them to go out and seek help. But certainly uh, transportation does not have to be an element of trafficking. And just another one here is there must be elements of physical restraint or physically forcing someone or physical bondage, like in the movie Taken. Again, the reality of it is that trafficking as a crime, you don't have to have any physical restraint, any bodily harm or physical force. But as we know, these victims do incur, you know, physical force and physical torture at times. Yeah, those are all great, Barb. Something that comes to my mind that people often don't realize is that they believe that trafficking only happens in illegal or underground industries. Mm. That's just not the case. Human trafficking cases, especially for labor trafficking, it's often reported that people that are working in restaurants or cleaning services or doing construction and things like that, they are coerced or you know they're promised a certain thing and then they show up for the job and it's a totally different scenario than what they're expected and then they're unable to leave just because they don't have the resources to do so. Another common myth is that if someone initially consented or agreed to be in a certain situation that it can't be trafficking because they should have known better or they shouldn't have agreed. Mm. But initial consent to commercial sex or even a certain job setting it doesn't necessarily mean that their situation isn't trafficking. Initially consenting to something doesn't mean that if the situation continues to escalate and the terms and conditions that you agree to change, that you aren't a victim. And another one that I see, especially when I'm working with teenagers, is that these victims of human trafficking will immediately ask for help or assistance and they'll identify immediately as a victim of crime. And that's just not true they're scared for many reasons. You know, there's that lack of trust, self-blame, also the traffickers' brainwashing of how they're going to behave when they're talking to anybody outside the circle. Trust takes some time to develop, especially with teenagers and young adults. And I had a 17-year-old come back for the second time, and she admitted then only because the law enforcement got involved that she was human trafficked for a couple months. And she said, I was in here three weeks ago but I lied about my name and I lied about my age because I didn't want you to know what was going on. So again, these young men and women are traumatized and they have went through so much and they're just not going to trust you. Yeah, Barb, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about that. Why do you think that people aren't comfortable telling that they think they're being trafficked? Do you think that they maybe don't understand that they're being trafficked? Do you think that they're embarrassed or scared or, you know, a combination of all that? 
I do. I think it's a combination of everything. And like I said, these men and women have undergone so much psychological and physical Mm -hmm. harm that they're scared of their traffickers. And to be honest with you, even if we identify them and get them help, I mean, there's very limited resources of where you can put these men and women in safe places. And a lot of times the only place they have to go back to is out on the street. So again, if we can't offer them a better way out of this, they're probably not going to take our recommendations if we can't come up with a viable solution and really not disclose the full length of their trafficking. A lot of shame too, I think. All of the unknowns of, Mm. okay, if I report, then what? So even being a victim of intimate partner violence or a victim of human trafficking, in some of these situations, you have more control when you're in that situation than reporting and then not knowing what's going to happen. Is it going to be more dangerous? Are you going to be homeless? Are you going to lose complete control of your life because you did do that? Yeah, I think that unknown is just terrifying to think about. What are some signs that people should look out for that could be indicators that someone's being trafficked? It's not always easily identified. Again, some of these victims don't see themselves as victims. Do they appear malnourished? Are they eating? Also, we want to look for any physical signs. You know, um, is there any abrasions, bruises, lacerations? Could there be any specific object that is used to give that imprint of the injury? Also, when you were communicating with them, they tend to avoid eye contact. Do they seem depressed? Do they seem distracted? Their answers are very short and very brief. And they are like fearing of any type of authority figures or law enforcement. And what they say to you seems very, very scripted and rehearsed. And they may be accompanied by their trafficker. And they notice that the other person is answering their questions and things like that. I was also going to say someone who's being constantly monitored, someone that appears to not have the freedom of will to talk freely or move around freely, being texted, you know, all the time, having to be completely accountable to someone almost all the time. Any of that's very, very scary. That means there's some control issues somewhere or owing a large amount of money or a debt of some kind to someone which would make them vulnerable. And, you know, also, especially with teenagers and young adults, you want to be looking at, is there displaying of any type of over-sexualized behavior? Are they dressing appropriately for the weather and for the occasion? Are they wearing expensive clothes, you know, as a teenager or a young adult? Do they seem to have large amounts of cash on them? Do they appear destitute or they lack personal possessions, you know, coming in with two or three bags full of clothes? When you're asking about where they're living, they may say they're living in a certain hotel. Um, Are they having any specific branded of tattoos with any names? Are they accompanied by an older boyfriend? Those are just kind of the things that we look out for when, you know, if you're concerned about a friend or a young individual. I was wondering if any of our panelists could also tell us a little bit more about some signs you might see if you weren't a medical professional. Like, let's say you're a college student, you met some people in your freshman year, and you, maybe you're worried about, like, one particular person. What might be some, like, ways that they could maybe demonstrate to you that they're being human trafficked without actually saying it? The best thing to do is kind of just, like you mentioned, pay attention to the people that are around you. So mm-hmm. if you know someone, you don't have to be best friends where you know all of the details of their life, but... You're familiar with someone and you notice all of a sudden they're dating this new person. 
and this new person is showering them with, you know, very lavish and expensive gifts or taking them on trips and things like that. That's often a pattern of boyfriending or an intimate partner kind of grooming someone for a trafficking situation where they're giving them all of these things. And before the individual knows it, you know, they're in this debt that they have to repay. And so the person is now saying, you know, if you don't engage in these sexual activities, you're going to owe me this money. So you have to figure out how to pay me back. And this is the only way you can do that. So paying attention to someone's patterns, if you're noticing something new that just doesn't seem quite right. Are there any kind of common ways that college student might fall victim to human trafficking, maybe trying to exploit somebody's college loans or something like that? Is that common practice? Definitely. What traffickers do is they look for vulnerabilities that an individual has and they take full advantage of that. So certainly college loans or not having the money to pay for books or not being able to get into a dorm. And so now you're, you know, you're stuck stranded or you're homeless. Those types of people, they look for those things and they exploit it. So it could be someone saying, oh, I need someone to work as my personal assistant and I'll pay you some outrageous amount of money. And as a new college student, you're someone who's not used to making your own money or you just don't have the money that you need just to get through life. It sounds like a great offer. So you take it and then the next thing you know, the situation is way out of control and not what you expected at all. And you're being forced to do things whether that's sexual or not, that you just did not agree to and you're not really sure how to get out of it or you're not able to get out of the situation because you're being threatened with being exposed for doing something that's against your cultural belief or your religious belief. A lot of times that's how things start and it just gets worse if someone isn't able to reach out for help or they don't know where to turn for help. That's really true of especially college students. If they've relocated from another state or from a city that's not near where they're going to college, they're very isolated from family and friends. And of course, that just makes these college students that much more vulnerable to, you know, older predators that befriend them and convince the victim that they're in some type of romantic relationship and then start to manipulate and coerce and control them. For a lot of younger people, one of the common tactics for recruiting someone into a trafficking situation is a term that we refer to as boyfriending or intimate partner recruitment. So you think that, you know, you meet someone, it could be you meet someone in person, you could meet someone on a dating app or online, and you think that, you know, you're starting a romantic relationship, you feel like you're falling in love, everything is going great, they're showering you with gifts and all of this attention and just things that you're not used to or all the things that you always wanted. And then one day they tell you, oh, well, actually... I'm not able to pay the rent this month, so I'm going to need you to go on a date with this person and have sex with them so that I can make ends meet. Or, you know, for the last three months, I've been buying you all of these gifts and now it's your turn to do something for me. So you're going to go and engage in these sexual acts, whether it's in person or online, like on a webcam or something like that, so that I can make back the money that I need because I'm only broke because I was buying you all of those things. Mm -hmm. So that sort of manipulation is very common. And a lot of people don't see it coming just because they thought that they were in love or they could be in love and just the situation has escalated to something that they didn't see coming. Right. That sounds very challenging to deal with going from somebody who seems like they're being super nice to you and then all of a sudden flipping it on you and then kind of forcing you as a victim. It sounds like it'd be really hard to deal with. Right. And like Barb mentioned earlier, 
what happens is during the process of this relationship building, you're being isolated from the few friends that you may have in a new place or you're being isolated from your family. So once that switch takes place, you're not even really sure how mm -hmm. or who to reach out to for help because you've kind of lost that connection with the people that were looking out for you and trying to make sure things were going okay with you. Let's say uh, I have a friend in college who maybe I'm concerned that they might be getting in one of these relationships that seems a little over the top. There's too many gifts. You know, my friend's not hanging out with me anymore. I don't see them very often. What should I do in that situation? What kind of resources do I have to kind of reach out and hopefully get this person some help? Most of the times, if you try to directly confront someone about their concerns, they will naturally get very defensive because they may not see the situation in the way that you do because they are in it. So talking to someone who has knowledge of trafficking and how to maneuver these types of situations is always the best option before speaking to the person that you're concerned about. So reaching out to the National Human Trafficking Hotline is a great option because the hotline is available 24-7 and there are advocates available that can talk through your concerns if you know someone is being manipulated specifically because they don't have anywhere to live. We can offer resources for shelter. If someone is in a labor trafficking situation, the hotline is able to connect someone with legal resources and different people who are well-versed in these situations and can offer a way out. I know Carrie mentioned earlier one of the scariest things about being in a trafficking situation is not knowing what's going to happen to you on the other side of that. Mm -hmm. So coming to someone with your concerns and being able to present them with options and alternatives for them to make the best decision for them is usually what helps to produce a best case scenario. When somebody is really that vulnerable in a human trafficking situation, Knowing that you're just a safe person to talk to is just so huge. Like, I'm not going anywhere with this information. I just want you to know that this is a safe place where you can talk. And if you want to chat with me about what we think we should do next or something like that, I think what's so terrifying is the idea that something's going to happen without their okay. But just knowing that you can mm -hmm. be a safe place to report that. Yeah. And also with being that safe place, it's important to remember that passing judgment or telling someone what they should do, you're also taking away their option to choose. And a lot of times when people have found themselves in a trafficking situation, your first conversation with them is really not going to make them want to leave their situation if it's something that they're comfortable with. So it may take talking to them a few different times or it may take you just being available to listen a few different times before they're willing or wanting to make any sort of decision on what to do next. I also wanted to say just one more thing, which is interesting considering today is Super Bowl Sunday, that you don't think of Indiana as sort of like a place where human trafficking happens, right? But Indiana is prime territory for this. I mean, look at what we have. We've got a population of between six and a half and seven million people. 11 times that many people come here every year for conventions, major sporting events like the Indy 500, the Brickyard. Most of our human trafficking legal work started before the 2012 Super Bowl was here. So this is a really big issue here because we have so many visitors that come to Indiana for these major sporting events. And it's being able to recognize when it's happening that is just so critical. So instead of saying not Indiana, really Indiana's sort of prime turf for this sort of trafficking. Carrie, yeah, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about 
how would somebody get trafficked at a Super Bowl, you know, sure. or traveling to a sports event? How does that take place? Before the 2012 Super Bowl, there was a lot of work put into this and it and has continued ever since in major convention areas and major sporting event areas. What they're doing is they're basically bringing that awareness to some of the smaller hotels and to the juvenile and teen and college age population explaining to them what trafficking looks like, whether it's labor trafficking or sex trafficking, that very often happens at these major sporting events. Wow. So guys, tell us, is there anything else that, you know, really puts males at risk? We've touched a lot on, um, you know, females, but speak a little more to that. Yeah, as, as the male host, I feel <laughs> we need to have a little bit of a talk about the, the males and what puts us at risk. Absolutely. I think it's a mistake to assume that all victims of human trafficking are young women and girls because they're not very often young males and young men are victims of human trafficking for the exact same reasons keep in mind that the only requirement or the only precursor to being a victim of human trafficking is being coerced into something like that whether it's money you owe whether you're in a position where someone has power and authority over you and that happens to men and women alike One other thing I just wanted to add, especially with teenager boys, especially if they're homeless, you know, they may tend to migrate to a trafficker that they see as a father figure who may turn out to obviously start to traffic this young man. I think that they're at high risk because, again, once they start getting involved in that, the shame, especially of being a male, is kind of overwhelming for them. And they're probably not likely to disclose for a long, long time. And to that point, I would also like people to remember that traffickers are not always men or people that identify as males. Women are also capable of taking advantage of someone's vulnerabilities and doing the same heinous acts against someone or forcing someone into a situation that they don't want to be in. So the most important thing to remember is to always be aware of your surroundings and how people are interacting with you. And if they're seems to be something that's not quite right or something that's a little off. Always talk about that with the people that you trust so that people are aware of what's happening with you. And if you do need help, they are available and able to help you reach out to whoever it is you need to be in touch with to make sure that you are safe. And if I can just add one more thing, you know, in advance of this, I wanted to do a little bit of research and see what we've been finding. But And then I remembered this case in 2016 where the authorities identified nine children from the Hamilton County area, which is the north side of Indianapolis, who were purchased by adult buyers for sex. And they were in hotels in the Castleton area. The youngest victim was 11 years old. These were students in Carmel and Fishers and Hamilton Southeastern. But these were young people that were trafficked. So if if you don't think this could be happening... It's naive. Thanks, everyone. I want to give you guys one last chance to give us any contact info or places we can go or our listeners can go if they find themselves in this kind of situation or someone they love. Uh, You want to start off, LaTori? Sure. So like I mentioned before, the National Human Trafficking Hotline is available 24-7. There's always someone available to answer the phone to respond to a text or a web chat. So to reach us by phone, the phone number would be 888-373-7888. By text, you would text the short code 233-733, which 
comes out to the words be free and you can just text help or info and someone will be there to answer. The website is humantraffickinghotline.org and there are advocates available that speak both English and Spanish. But if you have someone that speaks a language that is different than one of those two, or if you yourself speak a language that's different, we do have access to interpreters that can speak just about any language. So that is also something that's important to remember. Thank you, Latori. Always remember 211, which I think is a wonderful resource. If you think of 911 as law enforcement, 211 is for human services. Certainly 911 if it's an emergency, but 211 can connect you with lots of different resources right away. The 24-hour domestic violence hotline in the state of Indiana is 1-800-332-7385. Those are both really, really good resources. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, Barbara, do you have anything to add? Yes. And just remember that emergency departments in whatever city that you find yourself in, that they are a safe place to go and ask for help. There's nurses, doctors, and social workers there available to help. But just remember that, you know, if you have no other place you can think of, go to an emergency department. Thank you, Barbara. That's all really good advice. Well, thank you all for joining us today. And that was a lot of really great information. I did not realize how prevalent human trafficking was here in the U.S. Thank you, every single one of our panelists. Please remember to always look out for each other and to stay safe. Safe Tea is brought to you by Rachel's First Week. Executive producer, Mike Wilson from Airborne. Sound engineer, Ben Vauder. And a very special thanks to American Medical Response, NASCAR, and healthcare initiatives for their financial support of this podcast. Visit us on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, and Twitter at hashtag Rachel's First Week. Don't forget the A in Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. We want to hear from you, so contact us at rachelsfirstweek.org. Don't forget to subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of Safe Teeth. This is Georgia signing off. See you next time.